Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we talk about my bid into the semifinals of the MOA 2013, the delitting of a Haswell 4770K processor, and the death of the point-and-shoot camera. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McCain. A couple months back, Dennis, we talked about the MOA overclocking competition in our podcast, and I noticed that this month they've reached the semifinals. Yep, semifinals started July 1st. Now, looking at the semifinal rules, it looks like there have been some changes. I wouldn't say they're changes. It's more of just kind of refinements to the rules. They hinted at what was going to be in the semifinals, but there wasn't anything final in terms of what cards were going to be allowed or what processor was going to be used. And some of that was because none of that had been released yet. I know we theorized a little bit about the inclusion of the Titan, but take us through the semifinal rules at a, at a nutshell. Well, there is the MSI requirement for all the gear. So we have the MSI Z87 motherboards, and that's going to be pretty much anything, but a lot of the guys are going to be using the M-Power, the M-Power Max, and maybe even the X-Power if people can get a hold of one. That's going to also dictate that we're going to use Haswell processors. So the best processor you can get is the 4770K. They can run 7 gigahertz on a validation, but for 3D stable, anywhere around 6 gigahertz is going to be what you get. Well, the good news is that's an easy-to-get processor, at least. Yeah, 350 at Newegg. What else have we got that's different? The GTX Titan is going to be allowed. And that was one of the points of contention with the competitors and also kind of an unknown. So now is this a single card or a dual card or what? It's single CPU, single GPU, just like in the in the qualifying event and also in previous MOA events. So we're going to have just single processor, but with Haswell, they don't have any dual processor options. Not going to allow server chips, so no Xenons or Opterons. Okay. And since it's Haswell, there's not going to be an Opteron. And single GPU. So you can use the GTX Titan, the GTX 780, the GTX 770, and anything else in that range. Are you expecting folks to continue using the same 780 mix, or you think there's going to be a huge Titan presence? Ah, uh, that's a good question, because there was some discussion right after the, the qualifier ended. And during Computex, one of the competitors, Vivi, I believe, had started a thread asking people what they thought about for round two. Should Titan be allowed? And if so, what benchmarks we should run? And that started a friendly discussion that spawned into about 70-some pages of people getting a little butthurt and some people saying, hey, we should do this, and then another person rallying everybody up. And <laughs> yeah, there was just a lot of banter back and forth. Well, that's the forum mentality for you, but that's a pretty big response. What did MSI come back with? MSI is basically saying, hey, this is our competition, and this is what we're going to allow and what we're not going to allow. MSI doesn't really have a presence in the hardware bot forums. It's all proxy through Massman and some of the moderators. Now, you mentioned all of this started in the forums, but what got it all started? It all started quite simply with Vivi asking the question on if Titan should be allowed, and if so, what benchmarks should we run in the MOA Part 2? Uh, that's kind of interesting. Why wouldn't you just stick with the same benchmarks that you ran in the first round? Ironically, that's what happened, but I think he was just trying to get a friendly conversation going since the semifinals, or the semi-qualifier finals, was a small group of folks. It wasn't really open to the hardware bot public anymore. He thought that since it's a smaller group, we could get a nice discussion going, and if enough people say, hey, we should use 
W prime instead of Cinebench, maybe that would make it in. So as a quick refresher for everybody that is coming from two podcasts back, what are the benchmarks that are being used? First one was SuperPy 32M. That's kind of a stable for CPU and memory performance. They had Cinebench, which is release 11.5, and that's primarily a CPU bench. And that's where a lot of people brought out their six-core i7s. The more cores, the faster it's going to be. And then the last one was Firestrike Extreme, which is the new 3D Mark benchmark. DirectX 11, and it was a really short one, but it's pretty challenging. So what did they end up uh, deciding? Just to go with the same ones? Yeah, they went with the same ones. Although some of the people had suggested things like 3D Mark 06, Unigen, uh, a lot of Fire Strikes. People like the Fire Strike. Some people had 3D Mark 11. I threw in, hey, we should do W Prime instead of Cinebench. We didn't talk a lot about how uh, MOA went for you this year. I know last year was a, a massive endeavor for you, but uh, what did you decide to do this year? Well, we talked about that a couple podcasts back, and I pretty much aired my my plan. I was going to do just water cooling benchmarks, do one round, and see if I made it into the qualifier. And lo and behold, I did. Yay! But part of that was kind of the luck of not many people competing. So we had a guy from Brazil went in like the last three seconds, went and submitted all of his benchmarks and basically won the whole thing and got his free trip to Taiwan. Nice for so, him, I guess. Yeah, nice for him. A lot of people were kind of upset. Well, it's a tight-knit community, so I guess, well, you get so you kind of know everybody. Someone new, maybe that's all it was. Yeah. In my case, there was, I think, eight or nine people that submitted scores, and I was second to last. I made it in, so I'm in the semifinals. All right, that's not bad. Yeah, now the interesting thing that VV established in the thread was that the majority of the people that answered said, hey, no Titan in the semifinals. I think four, no, five people said that, hey, we should have Titan. We should make it be allowed. Those are probably the folks that already have one. Exactly. And, you know, as we talked about before, this is a $1,000 video card. And if you really want to overclock it, you have to modify the VRM. And that was one of the points of contention in the thread. The way that you modify these, if you go to the Kingpin cooling forums, is you take an EVGA Untouchables, which is an external VRM board, has, I think, 12 or 14 power faces on it. Now, is that available to the public? It is, although it's kind of hard to get sometimes, because they only make a few of them. And I've seen pictures, uh, again, bragging pictures, of people getting like five boxes in the mail from EVGA. and. I'm pretty sure they didn't buy them through the store. You know, a lot of uh, the high-end overclockers get this stuff for free anyway. But those things aside, that's just kind of how this market works and how enthusiast overclocking is regarded within the community. Manufacturers want to see what enthusiasts do with their hardware. And if it could, if you need to have a untouchables or an extra power plugged into the video card to get the most out of those cards, then so be it. Now, you talked a lot about your first round plan, but what's the second round plan for you? The second round plan is a little bit different because partially of what happened in the thread. In the thread, MSI pretty much put their foot down and said that we don't want to have any non-MSI branded hardware modified onto our MSI branded hardware. That sort of violates the whole spirit of a MSI sponsored event. Yeah, a little bit. 
So that means that anyone that bought a pre-modded Titan from somebody that has better soldering skills than them means that they can't use that card in competition. There were some people that came back in the thread and were talking about how there was no way to prove it and just bench with your EVGA with untouchables and if somebody asks a question, then take a picture of your extra Titan card. You know, basically telling everyone to kind of cheat. Oh, as if we all have extra Titans laying around. <laughs> well, some of these people do, I guess. That comes to the last um, rule change, if you will. It's not really a rule change. It's more of a clarification saying that anyone that is submitting scores that's over a certain speed has to make a video of the last five seconds of their benchmark run panning over to the video card to show the VRM area and then back to the screen to show the score. Well, that should help eliminate some of that. Yeah, and it will also eliminate people having to rebench live stream and whatnot, but it brought up a lot of questions of when do you actually make your video and is this run actually videoable? And it's like, well, if the score actually makes it and I didn't make a video, what happens? You know, there was a lot of people that were complaining about that. And sure, I can see that. You're some focused people focused on overclocking, not on video. Yeah, exactly. And some people were saying, hey, I've never uploaded a video before in my life. And I'm like, oh, this is what, 2013? I think you need to learn. But those things aside, my plan for MOA this year is a little strange, a little different, because I don't have a Titan. I'm not going to go out and buy a Titan. I have a pretty good Haswell CPU. I have all the cooling gear to get some pretty good 2D benchmarks out of it. But the best video card I have is still the 7970 Lightning. I didn't buy a 770 Lightning, but as we know, that is basically a GTX 680 and a properly modded, well, properly tuned, not necessarily modded, but tuned 7970 Lightning will beat that card in some cases. Back to the trusty Lightning. Yeah, it's going to get a lot of use. It's a good thing I didn't give it to you. <laughs> or I didn't give it back. Ha ha ha. I think we're all looking forward to seeing how far you can go this year. So look for updates in the forum, and we wish you luck. Thank you. Dennis, there's another project I've been meaning to ask you about, and your MOA discussion really reminded me that you've been working on a special project with your Haswell processor as well. I've been working on a couple of projects with that. Which one are you interested in specifically? I think you were talking about chopping it apart for the sake of supercooling, right? Oh, yes, the delitting process. That's crazy, but you got to tell me about delitting. Delitting is something that I did back in the K62 days. You remember that heat spreader they had on that crappy processor? Oh, yes. That well, was pretty useless. Yeah, it was. So you could take a screwdriver and basically pop the top off and then put the heatsink directly on top of the core and get a few extra megahertz out of it. Right, and didn't they used to do that with the slot AMD processors too? Pop those little cartridges apart and stick something real on the sides? That was in lieu of doing that with the Pentium 3 as well, but I think with the Golden Fingers you could get more out of the AMD stuff. But Oh, that's right, the old Golden Finger. But that didn't really involve you tearing apart your processor. Now, I have to tell you, <laughs> I think tearing a processor apart is crazy. It is pretty crazy. It is something that you could not do with Sandy Bridge either, because in Sandy Bridge, Intel soldered the heat spreader directly to the CPU core. Okay. So if you tried to delit it, you basically ripped the silicon off of that processor plate. So delitting seems sort of self-explanatory, but what does that mean exactly? 
Well, with Ivy Bridge and with Haswell, it has a three-dimensional transistor, and I think that there was a problem with heat, so they couldn't solder those back on there, or maybe there was a cost savings or something. But instead of using solder to connect the heat spreader with the CPU, they use some really crappy thermal paste, like what you find under OEM heat sinks on like a chipset or a video card. So wait, wait, wait. I think I've got this now. So the lid is the cover, what we think of as the top surface of the processor. Yep, that's the the heat spreader. That's the technical term. Heat spreader. Okay, I should know that, I think. But to me, it just seems like I've never had to do anything with that except for polish it and put some stuff on it. Well, and some people don't even polish them, but that's another story that we can talk about a little bit later. Right, so if I'm understanding you correctly, the area underneath that is filled with whatever the lowest common bidder probably had for a heat sink product for a for a heat paste yeah it's the that crazy heat paste that uh, cures so it's all crumbly and gross so when they put it on there it's all soft but when the glue dries i think it goes through a heat process it dries out the tim or the thermal interface material i think that's what the m stands for so there's a, a gap that's created and that gap doesn't transmit heat very well so this is a intentional design decision or a design flaw? I think a little of both, you know, because we talked about where I mentioned that it might have been cost savings or it could have been something to do with the 3D transistors where they couldn't actually solder them on there okay. without damaging the processor. So they use this thermal compound instead, and basically they make the tolerances such that when they squish the... Uh, the heat spreader onto the CPU is supposed to push out all the tim and give you a metal-to-metal contact with just a few gaps filled with the thermal paste. It's basically the same process of putting a heat sink onto a processor, but there's different variances in there where it might be twisted a little bit or might not go down straight. And that's where the heat comes in with Ivy Bridge and Haswell. The glue that holds the heat spreader to the processor isn't always flat. It might be up a little bit, so a couple of cores will be hotter than a couple of other cores, or they just might be hot in general. By taking the lid off, you can take off all that crappy thermal paste, put on your own, like some Arctic Silver or some G-Lid or you know anything that's a favorite of yours, put a little bit of glue around the outside and squish it back together. Oh, so you actually put the lid back on. Yeah, well, you have to put the lid back on, otherwise the, the way that the... Um, the pinless sockets work. You got to get enough pressure down on there to make contact. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Okay, I gotcha. I believe ASUS has um, included with some boards a, a shim that you basically you pull the top, the, the clamping mechanism off your socket, put your processor in there, put this shim down on it, and then screw it back down, and it will hold it in place so that you can go direct core contacts. Interesting. I'm a little intrigued by the whole process. How do you cut the lid off? There's two methods. One of them is a little more dangerous than the other. And I'll start with the most dangerous one. Okay. And that's using a vise, a piece of wood, and a hammer. Trying to visualize. Vise just seems like the wrong thing to put a CPU into. Yeah. You take the the uh, heat spreader, the metal part. Okay. You clamp that into the vise. And then you take a block of wood, put it onto the side of the processor okay right next to the vice so that you have basically the the clamp cpu and then a board right there and then you give it a good whack with a hammer 
Wow. How much are these processors again? (laughs) All right. So dangerous. Gotcha. That's plan A. That's plan A. And that's basically a one, two hit, and then it's off. You know, a a 10-second process. So you need a buddy with a catcher's mitt, really, is what you're saying? Well, according to the videos on YouTube, you don't because you don't hit them that hard. But, you know, you're going to have a couple of overzealous guys that are going (laughs) to smack them pretty hard. And by doing this, you're voiding the warranty if you blow up the processor. No, you don't say. Yeah. Yeah. So the second option. Much better option, I'm guessing. Is to take a razor blade and basically cut it off. That already sounds better. Yeah, that's a, a good 10-minute process, and it's one that I did, you know, just put the processor in your hand and take a razor blade on the corners, wiggle it in until you get, I would say, maybe of a quarter of an inch of the razor blade under the heat spreader. Okay. Pull it out, go to the next corner, do the same thing, go to the next corner until all four corners are done, and then start in the corner and wiggle it down until you get that same quarter of an inch under one side, and then do that to all the different sides. No risk of uh, razor blading any of the delicate 3D circuitry then? No, the CPU core is far enough in that if you only go in about a quarter of an inch, you're not going to touch them. Although on the Haswell processor, unlike the Ivy Bridge, there's a few resistors along one side of the CPU core, so you need to be careful about not touching those on that side. Okay. But I've read some reports where somebody will go knock one of those off and they're all worried about it. They put it together and the processor works just fine, so... Interesting. So now I know, one, I need to go and find a YouTube video of these idiots with the vice. And two, that uh, I'm really curious as to how exactly it improved your performance. Performance-wise, it's mostly going to be in heat. So in my case, I ran Prime95 on the Gigabyte UD4H board, which is one of the first ones I tested with this processor. And under a water cooler, I was getting about 60 degrees centigrade of heat at the CPU core. Okay. Now, normally, if you were getting 60 degrees of heat off the processor, you're getting a lot of heat off the heatsink as well. But there wasn't that much at all. It's almost like the heat was being trapped there and wasn't moving. Although, if you turn off the fan, the water would heat up. So there was a heat transfer that was happening, but not as fast as I would have liked off the CPU core. And now uh, this is running an ambient water cooling? Ambient water cooling. It's a self-contained water 2.0 from Thermaltake. Oh, yeah. That's a good system. Okay. Yeah. After the delitting process, I got about 10 degrees drop under the using the same cooler, same thermal paste, but I used an Arctic Silver paste in between the, the lid and the CPU. And by just doing that and squishing it back together, I was able to drop 10 degrees. So I was running 50C at the same clocks in the same cooler. Well, that's more than 10%. That sounds like a pretty good improvement. Yeah, I would hope so as well, but that didn't increase overclocking at all. Oh, really? All it really did was allowed me to get to the same clock using less voltage. Safer, I guess. It's a little safer. It'll make it last a little bit longer. With Haswell, you are heat limited for the most part, primarily because of the CPU architecture. The core is really small. There's a a voltage regulator that's on core now. You have the same heat from Ivy Bridge plus this new voltage regulator, so it's dumping more heat in there, even though it's, they say it's like a, what, 80-watt processor. Yeah. It's still going to be pretty hot under the lid. And as you're overclocking, you're putting voltage in there. Well, it's going to spike all the way up to 90C under normal load conditions, at, you know, around 4.2, 4.3 gigahertz. So any voltage drop you can get will help that temperature to keep it down. So you might be able to get a few extra megahertz out of it, but I wasn't able to see anything higher than 4.5 
before the lidding process and after the lidding process. What if you throw it on like the phase or something fancy, liquid nitrogen, for example? Liquid nitrogen, you wouldn't need to do the lidding process at all because you can drop that down below the cold bug, which is around negative 120 C. Now with the phase cooler, I'm really hoping that the delidding will help get a few extra megahertz under the phase. Before the process, I had it on a Gigabyte X8 or Z87 OC board, and I was able to get 5 gigahertz out of it with the extra cooling. Although if you looked in the BIOS with the voltage I needed to run those clocks, the CPU was above ambient. It wasn't actually below zero like it should have been. So there was still a lot of heat transfer in there. And I'm hoping with the lidding process, I can get five gigahertz and keep the CPU sub-zero. No danger then of the lid leaking or taking in moisture? It depends on how you glue the lid back on. In my case, I used some black RTV, you know, the stuff that you can buy off the shelf at the auto parts store, and used a, a skewer, for the lack of another term. Put a little bit of, uh, of that silicone around all the corners and squished it back in there. And when I put it back in the CPU socket to hold it in place, that's what provided the pressure to basically seal the glue. After a couple hours, it was cured and it was stuck on there for good. Well, that sounds very technical, but still better than the vice. I know you took a bunch of pictures of this process, so it's a good opportunity for folks to come check that out on the Ninja Lane forums and also in the show notes. So I'd encourage folks to go check that out. And in the meantime, we'll look for those MOA numbers to see just how quick that Haswell went. You keep telling me how you're a fan of Daily Tech and you go there every day to get your news. Yeah, I like Daily Tech. It's a great aggregate news site, and I'm sure that there are lots of them. Folks have their different favorites, but Daily Tech was sort of an outgrowth of Anantech. But uh, it's a good way to keep uh, current on the pulse of uh, what's going on in the tech world and science world and cars and all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, and every site has a different a different uh, niche that they follow. Daily Tech is kind of like a, you know an enthusiast sort of CNET, I would say. One of the articles that you brought up was about, what is it, the death of the point-and-shoot camera or something? Yeah, and you know, I wanted to talk about this because I have a pretty good digital camera, but it's a couple of generations old, and it just is hard to feel like a 12.5 megapixel camera is a dinosaur. Yeah, well, I have, admittedly, I have a couple of old cameras as well. I have a point-and-shoot that's a Canon. I think it's like what 13 megapixels or something and then i have my high-end dslr my rebel that i use for trade shows and product photos i'm gonna say it's like almost five years old now i was out dennis trying to see if i wanted a replacement and just kind of window shopping cameras when i came across this article and it's through daily tech but it's it's referencing linkedin so i just want to give credit where credit's due the original article was done by herb greenberg at cnbc and and you can Google this, but he's talking about the death of the point-and-shoot digital camera specifically, and it's a really great article. I'm just going to talk a little bit about it because I just found it so fascinating. I wanted to get your opinion on it. All right, go ahead. So Herb says, and I'm just going to lead off kind of in the part that I find interesting, that sales of digital cameras have been sliding for several years, which I think we've all kind of noticed. Yeah, same as PCs and everything else, but... But in recent months, the slowdown has become more pronounced. So pronounced that Molex is starting to talk about it. Okay. So who's Molex? Well, we're familiar with the term Molex from the computer word. It turns out that Molex is a Chicago company, so fairly local. And it says, 
they are one of the largest makers of the connectors and sockets that connect these components together. So when things hit this point where Molex is talking about on their earnings call, it's a little bit seriously. But basically, back in October, CEO Martin Slark stated that he thought the camera market would be challenged through Mark, but basically he attributed it to, and I quote, the pre-Christmas building is winding down early. And he expected things to get better, but the reality is that it just hasn't. And it got me thinking, well, who buys point-and-click cameras? NPD, which is, of course, the agency that tracks sales of everything, right? Yep. Has pointed out that whole unit sales of point-and-shoot cameras have slipped 28% last year, which is a bigger drop than the prior year. The fourth quarter was worth, showing a dismal 33% drop. Now, the DSLR market is still growing, but it is growing much slower than it has in the past. So it would appear that maybe the digital camera market has reached its saturation point. Does he go on to say why that's happening? Well, he says people aren't really buying digital cameras. To me, with a little help from my friend Herb, it looks like the reason for that is, well, what am I holding in my hand looking at this article right now? A Samsung something or other. It is a Samsung Galaxy S3. A smartphone with what? A digital Uh, camera. Digital camera. Yeah, even my crappy BlackBerry has a digital camera. (laughs) It's hard to buy a phone that doesn't have a digital camera. Let's face it, nearly everybody has a digital camera or tablet or a laptop with some way to take pictures. Mm -hmm. Now, my S3 is an 8 megapixel, and my wife's S4 is a 12, 13 megapixel. Yeah, something like that. I just mentioned what my camera was. In specs, at least, my wife's phone takes better pictures than my point-and-click digital camera. Now, are you basing that off of photo quality or based on the size of the image? Now, technology-wise, as we both know, there's more to the picture than just megapixel. Right. But for casual shooting, honestly, there's no reason for me to ever pick up that camera. No. Admittedly, I don't use my point-and-shoot unless I am not wanting to carry my big camera around for the most part. I mean, I'll use my point-and-shoot for... Like, for instance, at Computex, at the after shows, uh, the overclocking events I went to, I had my point shoot with me. Mostly, I didn't want to carry my big DSLR around and have to figure out how flashes are going to bounce off the ceiling so I can get a proper photo. And really, I just wanted to take a picture, click, and be done with it. And the point shoot worked great. So looking at the future of digital camera convergence, you have to look at the hot new phone that's been getting so much attention from Nokia, and that is the new Lumina or Lumia 1020. Now, this is Nokia's new flagship, so it's a Windows 8 phone, mm-hmm. a smartphone, of course, with some pretty rocking specs, to be honest with you. But what really jumps out is the 41 megapixel camera that's being included with this. 41 megapixels. That's pretty insane. Saying here, 36 megapixels in 4.3 ratios, 34 megapixels in 6.9 ratio, with oversampling up to 5 megapixel. Yeah, that's pretty good. Of course, we'll wait to see how good the quality is, because so much depends on not just the amount of megapixels, but the quality, the quality of the lenses, the aperture, all that kind of good stuff. I mean, there's more to it. You know, you do some photography. Mm-hmm. 41 megapixels in a camera. That It seems a little overkill, actually, because... Think about the size of that image. Not mm-hmm. necessarily like dimensionally 
height and width, but we're talking about like file size. You know, I'm taking a 13, 20 megapixel photo and that's six megs compressed. Right. And on a phone, I know that you can put SD cards in there and, you know, save as much as you want, but that might be like one or two pictures before you fill up that card to the well, point you where you can't it, use it. You make a really valid point because sight unseen 41 megapixels really gives you the great opportunity to introduce a lot of noise mm -hmm. and unnecessary compression in order to make it work in a phone. Right. A phone is going to be small form factor. Right. And the one thing that defines image quality is the size of the CMOS sensor or the image sensor that's collecting the image off the lens. Right. And that's where DSLR cameras are so much better than like a point and shoot because these sensors are huge. So you can introduce a large lens, large picture size, and get a good quality photo off of that. Now with a camera, you're looking through a little pinhole. It's basically a pinhole camera from, you know, your school days. Sure, very and, little lens. And you're saving that on a minute sensor mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, you can miniaturize this stuff to a certain point, but at 41 megapixels with oversampling, that's going to be a digital enlargement. Your sensor is still going to be, what, the 36 megapixels that they talk about right. in the specs, and it's just making it bigger. We should point out also that it's also been paired with an upgraded Xenon plus LED dual flash system, which overcomes the other really big issue with using your phone as a point-and-click camera, and that is, yeah, the flash is just useless. <laughs> That's true. Makes uh, a good flashlight, I guess. Well, yeah, they have an app for that, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. But it does give you the opportunity to, with the dual flash, do fill-in flash, and, you know, some of the stuff that you're just not used to seeing in a phone or even a cheap digital camera for that matter. I guess you could do video with that too, couldn't you? I am thinking that it's going to have to do 1080p. I mean, most of the high-end phones do now. Yeah, it's saying, uh, well, the Zoom 3x at 5 megapixel, 6x at 720p, 4x at 1080p. So you're going to be able to do some pretty rocking video with that. And with that Xenon flash, you can do low light stuff in the, you know, the shady parts of the world or your house or around back, you know. I'm not sure still that a Nokia is going to replace the point and click in my arsenal, at least right away. But it does bring some interesting thoughts up. Now, I had been on the market for uh, maybe a year old, two year old uh, digital SLR so I could get a affordable body. I'm not a pro. I was looking and some of these same technologies that have been prevalent in the smartphones for quite a while are now starting to show up in the digital SLR cameras as well. Such as? Well, wireless is probably the biggest one. You yeah. don't even really need a good memory card. You can, if you have the right camera and the right PC or laptop or tablet, you can take the pictures and they will wireless transfer at the push of a button or automatically feed to your storage device. True. Professional uh, photo studios have had that for years. I mean, that was always one of their big go-to things where they have the camera set on a tripod and then they would take a picture, but they wouldn't even be behind the camera. They'd be looking on their computer and zooming in and focusing from there and then click by hitting enter. Oh, nice and remote. Yeah, that's true. But that was very expensive before. That was. And now it's getting a lot cheaper and over Wi-Fi, then, you know, you can connect anywhere. And who knew that your digital SLR was suddenly going to be a social media device? One-touch Instagram, one-touch Facebook, one-touch digital media on your high-end digital SLR camera. Yeah, the only thing is now you got to carry that around instead of your phone. Which leads us back to the 
and Lumia. <laughs> and that actually talks also about the U.S. trend in computers, which is moving toward portable media, consumable devices like tablets and phones and pad phones, and less so much with laptops and desktops and high-end workstations. You know, you still need the desktops and the workstations for content creation, but for consuming media, for Facebooking, for Instagram, you don't need all that anymore. And that's why a lot of the PC market is going down, along with the point-and-shoot camera market. It's just kind of how our, for the lack of another term, the marketers of all of this new hardware that's coming out is actually selling it to the public. So the question is, is the point-and-click digital camera really dead? Or are we still a few generations away? I don't know. But I think before you get to a phone that you can hook a nice aftermarket lens on, you know, at least the serious photographers are stuck with a camera that they're going to have to tote around. And arguably, they would say that that's the better option. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Ninja Lane by subscribing to our RSS, now available on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2013. Thanks for listening.